You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we sit down with Bob Carr, who has been an active and angel investor as well as in business development, founding and growing some of the most powerful networking groups in Silicon Valley. His current company, LinkSV, is an online information service providing curated, detailed information about the senior team, board members, key partners, customers, angels, institutional VC fundings on companies in Silicon Valley. On this week's episode, we talk about what are some of the usual questions VCs and angels ask entrepreneurs, practical advice for entrepreneurs to connect with angels, and has what angel investors look for in startups changed over the years? This and much more on this episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now let's start the show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Bob, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. I'm happy to be here. Now, Bob, you're 78 years old going on 30. Can you tell us a little bit about your time here in Silicon Valley, your career, everything up to this point. I was born in San Mateo, and I went to college locally. And when you get out of college and you're not uh, ready to become a doctor or, or a or nuclear physicist, you have to figure out a career. And my father was a doctor, and he suggested to me, why don't you go in the insurance business? Because you'll meet a lot of interesting people who have challenging careers who have to buy insurance. So I did that, and I started out initially in the, in the life insurance business. That didn't intrigue me. Went to the benefit business. Uh, was did that for a number of years, and then I gradually shifted over to the liability business, which was directors and officers liability, uh, general liability, that sort of thing. And I did that with um, all with one company. We were the largest regional firm in California. We got acquired by tra- a combination of Transamerica, Sedgwick, and Fred S. James, and so I stayed with one company for basically my entire career. Had a great experience. We um, had 500 people in San Francisco. I was responsible for sales, marketing, business development. So I personally was involved in producing a whole bunch of, of technology companies because my, my focus was on the technology sector, biotech and medical companies. And so I had a, I had a really nice experience. And that's what I did until I, uh, until I retired. In Silicon Valley, you never retire, you reload. And so since I had been an active angel investor in companies and was really curious about companies, and I learned a lot about companies, um, insuring these companies when they were getting started, I became curious about beyond the business risk, I was curious about the opportunity risks. And so, I, as I say, I invested in some companies. So that's what I did. And then I wanted to see what I could do more after I, after I decided to retire. And so my secretary, back in the days when you actually had secretaries, got me started on DOS on, with a little computer, which then we moved over to Excel. And then we actually built a program for my company, for my own program. So I was what I was doing was I was trying to teach people how to be more respectful of the community they were calling on for business by learning about them. So in the old days, you had to learn how to annual reports. Today, you can learn tons of stuff on the internet. So I wanted to create a digital history of the Silicon Valley, which is my goal, which I, what I'm currently doing. So then what does Silicon Valley represent to you? What is Silicon Valley? Well, if you start early enough, when we were living in San Mateo, we said goodbye to our neighbors because they were leaving. They were moving to Los Gatos. This was back at about 1953. That was like a million miles away. Goodbye, have a, have a great life. And of course, when I first started work in San Jose and then was 
commuting to San Francisco to start my career in the insurance business, there was no Highway 280. There was Lock and Yonada Road. So can you, you can imagine driving from San Jose to San Francisco. Silicon Valley was all orchards at the time. And I was out calling on companies when Intel, when Intel had 10 employees back in the late 60s, early 70s, right? So I was here at the very beginning of the birth of Silicon Valley. If you think about where it all happened from, this was basically uh, Arthur Rock and Venrock convinced uh, Sherman Fairchild to start Fairchild Semiconductor. Out of Fairchild morphed all these companies called Intel and National and all these companies. And that was the Silicon Valley. We were, we were a, semiconductor, a semiconductor industry back in the early days. And out of that came the software industry that developed uh, software to serve all these semiconductor companies, companies like Cadence, on and on and on. So out of that, out of the software technology grew the early stages of the internet because people, the people with software backgrounds recognized the opportunities. And a whole other era started. But it was very small, very close-knit, but the valley has changed a lot. Now we've got Google and Facebook and t tons of these companies that are just have changed the whole landscape here. So I've seen it from the very beginning, but it's interesting because the Valley had the luxury of having Berkeley, you know, Cal Berkeley, Stanford, Santa Clara. So it had a great university uh, ecosystem environment. It had a, a lot of people that, with a lot of wealth that were interested in investing. And so it was the right climate. The whole venture capital industry grew out of all this. And so it just, it, it morphed. It just, it happened. And now, of course, it's happening in other parts of the country. But certainly, you, can't, you don't replicate Silicon Valley overnight. I mean, you've worked and mentored many startups. When you're mentoring someone, what are some of the usual questions that you ask that entrepreneur? So let me clarify my involvement. Um, I was involved with a lot of very early stage companies, companies at the formative stage. And so I had a chance to meet a lot of founders, have comments for them that could be, could be young or old. It wasn't the age, it was where they were and what they were trying to accomplish. And so anybody that had anything to contribute that was valuable, people appreciated. So it's not like I was coaching a company that already raised $10 million and was on their, on, their, on their way. So what happens when companies are first getting started, they have this big dream about what they want to go do. And they probably haven't done enough homework. They have underestimated what the market's all about, how many other people they're competing with. Okay, all these kind of things are out there. So I'm probably coaching them about, have you done your homework? Have you been able to figure out who, the, who, who else is in this space? What are you going to do about raising capital? Have you thought about some timelines? There's a million things to get them to think about. And of course, when I was first getting started, I was probably all, all more excited about what they were doing. As I got older and more thoughtful, I was probably asking better questions. And of course, as I, as I made investments that didn't work out, you know, it's like, like in the venture capital industry. I mean, they expect to have one big hit out of 10. They expect to lose money on companies until they find the big opportunity. So the angels are much the same way. You're hoping that you're going to make some Of course, you get excited about every investment early on, and some don't work out and some do. So you learn a lot along the way. And as I learned a lot, I became more discerning the questions that I asked. But generally speaking, what am I concerned about? I'm concerned, I'm concerned about their startup experience. Because if they've come out, for example, uh, coming out of IBM, and they've had a lot of luxury of a lot of support, they don't recognize what it takes to start a company. You've got to grab a broom. You're eating cold pizza at 2 o'clock in the morning. You're trying to convince somebody to get started with you. There's all kinds of challenges that you have, and you don't realize all the time that it takes to do all that. And you haven't had these experiences with all the support you've had before. So you become a little wary of people who are coming out of larger environments with a lot of support. You also want to know about what their passion for the project is. 
Because as you get around, you talk to people who have started companies, a lot of these companies were started because, because some entrepreneurs were personally inconvenienced about something. And they, they started checking it out and recognized, if I'm inconvenienced, so would a whole category of people be inconvenienced. And so it's amazing how these companies have gotten started that way. And I think that would have happened a lot early on. Things have changed now a bit because, anyway, what, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And that, what that means is, are people really, really willing to pay for something? It's, and by the way, getting a beta customer and somebody to come on to try your product because you know them and to give them a big, discount is a, lot, a big discount is a lot different than talking to someone you don't know, trying to get to meet that someone who you don't know, and getting to pay, to pay full price. But I think people may, might, be fooled, might be fooled a little bit by the early success they have by people acknowledging that they're on the right track. When you try to go out and get customers that you don't know, so what, again, what are the acquisition costs of getting customers? How difficult is that? And I don't think people recognize how much turnover there is with salespeople and people you try to hire. And it's very, very discouraging when you've brought on somebody you think is going to help you get from point A to point B. And from their perspective, it's just, an, it's just another business and it's not working. And so while you're out preaching the company in the cafeteria to where we're going, Half the people in, the, in that meeting might be already getting their resumes prepared and looking for other opportunities, and you probably know what I'm talking about. So your passion's important, but you have to get a lot of other people to share your passion. All these things are very difficult. So then, we, again, I was talking about prospective customers and how you get customers. It's, 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 it's really a difficult, it's a long road. And so I'm probably listening more carefully than I have in the past about the customer acquisition discussion, the cost of getting customers, how you're going to do that. How, how easy it is or difficult it is to engage somebody in a conversation. You're basically trying to start conversations with people and see where all that goes. What's the state of the competition? And you people under, underestimate that because if you're excited about something, it's probably because you've learned about a general discipline or segment that's happening. Other people are, rea are realizing the same things. So a lot of people are getting started in the space that are also stealth you don't even know about. Which also brings up a subject a little further down my mind, but I think successful entrepreneurs are also thinking about building their technology into the path of the acquirers. Because think about this, everybody in Silicon Valley is going to get acquired if they're lucky. There's only 30, about 35 IPOs a year in a good market. So the last couple of years, 35 to 40 IPOs in a bad market, 7 to 10. That means every company out there is looking to be acquired. A couple of thoughts on that. People are building their technology to the platform of the acquirer. So what platform is Microsoft using? Where's Amazon? Where's Google? What's, what's going on? Because you want to be able eventually to present something in a way that's going to make them easy to acquire. I learned that early on when a guy came to see me, who, was a, who I really respected in the Valley, and when he came to see me, he said, Bob, let's have a cup of tea because we're already closing down our idea. Their idea was to build a Windows at the very bottom where you can type something in like talking to Siri or whatever. You know, okay, now you're just talking the bottom of your screen. And up, that was their idea. But of course, Microsoft got into it and they didn't have a business. So you have to, be, have to understand the business you're going to get into and how you can get run over it very easily. In fact, I know that you interviewed Schmuel several months ago. I happen to love Schmuel. Schmuel spent 16 years at Motorola on the dark side. What Schmuel was doing was being able to figure out how they're just going to run over some small company. From my insurance background, I know that you have a duty to, de to defend your patents. And in doing so, young companies are lucky to get enough money just to, to get a 
patent, get one started, let alone defend it, right? So Motorola knew they can roll over anybody. And so do the big companies. They're not, they're not concerned about patents necessarily. It's a murky road out there. And as an investor, we're all looking for a company that has, has a great patent or a great idea that, that, you, can, that you can protect. So it's, a, it's, it's tough out there, is what I'm saying. So the IP discussions are important, but I'm not sure how much you can really defend. Anyway, then you get into the cost of getting a company started. What is your burn rating? For example, can you reach the milestones? What can you accomplish between now and the time you're going to raise money? What can you show the next investor? My discussion earlier with you before we started about Mexico. What can you show this investor that you've accomplished to now and what you're going to accomplish between the A and the B round? Everybody wants to know what these milestones are going to be, and they want to see if you, can, if you can reach these milestones. I mean, everything, to me, by the way, making commitments and following through on commitments is very important. When I initially start a conversation with somebody, do they follow through? Or do they say thank you? Do they get back to me? That whole pattern of having a commitment and following through with a commitment is, is important. It's very important when you're trying to show your investors that you set out with these ambitious goals and you actually reach them. And of course, the whole process of raising capital is much more difficult than, than people think. Because, you know, you hear a lot of stories how all these kids are coming out of Stanford and out of dorm rooms. Well, what's happening is, is that uh, Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road has seeded their, early, their A round and their earliest rounds to the angel community because all these kids are coming out of dorms and they either have family capital or they're getting it from their friends. And they have a lot of contacts and they're starting internet companies in their dorm room. And the VCs are finding they don't have enough, enough to bring to the table beyond capital. These kids already have connections. So that's why one of the reasons you're seeing the venture community move toward the later stages. They're looking for bigger hits because they have a lot of competition starting in these early rounds with lots of other people. Because after all, if Google was coining a millionaire on a daily basis, let alone all these other companies, think how many young people are coming into a lot of liquidity early on. And they have very big Rolodexes and a lot of ideas. So we say in Silicon Valley, you know, in LA, people are running around with a script in their back pocket. In Silicon Valley, I can assure you, everybody has at least two companies in their pocket with an idea or two. Again, in the entrepreneurial community, if you're a doctor or a dentist, or you work for Ernst Young, or you work with a company where you have a lifetime career, it's great, you stay there. But if you're in technology, the way technology works, uh, gosh, the life cycle in technology is, used to be, years ago, it was seven years. My brother Howard was a major headhunter, executive search guy, favored by the VC community. Seven years was just the right time because you were there long enough to make major changes and have a big contribution. If you're there too long, you don't have the audacity or the, willing, the willingness, the excitement about changing. But now that cycles down to two years or even six months because today I think you're hired on a project to help solve a problem. Then maybe you decide to stay full time. Think about that. So salespeople move pretty quickly. So a lot of people are moving quickly because they see it's, it's just not there. It's amazing the rate of change that are happening with people. So people, you know, are starting to, it's more important now. People, it's for people to manage their own brand. Companies have a brand. We've talked about brand earlier. People have to have a brand. They have to know that, that their company could be sold right up from under them because all of a sudden up came an opportunity. Going back to our comment about startups and getting started. So you're building your company to be acquired at some point. I mean, that's what happens if you're lucky. If you're unlucky, you close the company down. 
So if you're lucky and you're in the path of growth and the good opportunity, some company decided that they needed you a whole lot more than you recognize. That brings up my friend John, John Majeski from the company we're starting called Portola Valley Ventures. John came out of Lenovo and they really lost their big opportunity because Lenovo is no longer investing because of Cytheus. You know, Chinese companies aren't investing in the States any longer. So they're getting together. I'm actually the chairman of that company. And what we're looking for, exciting companies who have probably maybe a million dollars of run rate, have a product, but you know, they're stalled. They're tired. The founder just lost a couple of key people. He doesn't have the wherewithal or the finance to make it go further. He's not the new kid on the block. He's probably four years old, but he's got some good IP, right? So John, in the course of all his travels and with all his contacts, John came out of Dell, HP, has global contacts at SAP and Ericsson, all the major companies at the, at the highest levels. We're looking, for, we're looking to pair up companies that have, we think are parallel, interesting, but in their own, have, have, they've done A, someone else has done B, and together becomes a great opportunity. And we think we can greatly increase their strategy and their valuation by creating a new company in the middle and, and, building, and building something in the center with a little dedicated staff from both sides. We're actually launching our first company opportunity this month. Interesting. Can you talk maybe not so much about the first company, but that idea that A plus B equals a greater C? I mean, sure. I mean, literally speaking, everything is about the valuation of a company. You work really hard and you're hoping that someday that your shares are going to be valuable. Companies have to have their shares more valuable to keep the people they've got and attract new people. They can't be a flat company. That's what Silicon Valley is all about. Even if you said, look, I'm enjoying having this nice little business. It's great. My, I'm home. At, I, I have some free time. It's all good. It's almost not good enough because you're trying to grow the company. You're also looking at a market opportunity. Market opportunities open and close. At any space you're looking at, the window's going to close at some time. Or maybe you have an early, edge in, an early edge in the market. So wherever you are, time is of the essence, right? And so you're always trying to attract the right kind of people. And you're always looking, you're always a day late, a dollar short, because you never have enough capital, unless you have unlimited capital, which doesn't happen to most of these emerging companies. So the timing is important. Attracting people is important. So think of yourself as a composer. Jeez, if, you can, if you're a composer and it's all working smoothly, then you're the next great Google. I mean, things have just happened for you. And this does happen. Uh, investors see a great opportunity. They tell their friends or VCs about you. And, and all of a sudden, you're attracting world-class talent and world-class everything. And you're on a good path. But for everybody who gets on a great path and gets a lot of, a lot of funding and a lot of great people, it's a rocky road for a lot of other people. So this goes on. And this is what causes, creates turnover and creates stress, creates anxiety, creates illness. Because it's so alluring, it's a huge opportunity, but you know, it's in front of you. So because of what I do at Link SV, I see these resumes all day long. I'm, after all, we have 15,700 companies in our data set. I see companies exiting, coming and going all the time. And you wonder what's going to happen to them. Well, because they just didn't quite make it. They missed the opportunity. So, or they're there too long and the people left and went to the next technology that's coming up. Coming up. So all these things are this is this is not we're not in we're not in Ohio. We're here. This is California. This is Silicon Valley. So it's a it's a fast track business. And so the people who come in it, all these young people, they are they get accustomed to this to this fast track environment. Yeah. The other things about getting a company started, and when I talk to a young company, really, I want to know where they are in their family situation 
how does their spouse or their their significant other feel about all the time they're going to spend on this project as opposed to walking on the beach with their dog and all the things they have for avocations. How do you go about finding that information? Because, I mean, in California, you can't really directly ask you're newlywed, are you expecting kids? Or is it just through a regular coffee talk where you get to find out more information about? I would take issue to some degree. I mean, I, th- I mean, why couldn't I ask somebody, look, I'd like to talk with you about how well you're positioned to take this leap, because what you're telling me is you're going to be leaving Microsoft or you're leaving such and such, you're going to start a company. Recognizing that you've already said it's going to take a lot of time, are you really prepared, and are the people who are in your life, are they prepared for the amount of time that, you, that you're going to be able to devote? This could be your children, it could be your spouse, it could be your mom and dad, whatever. Are they, are they prepared for you to make that kind, of contrib- that kind of commitment? And by the way, how are you fixed financially? Because your investors are going to want to see how much capital you're putting into the company, the capital and time and energy. So where are you? And by the way, are you able to go without a paycheck for how long? Until you have enough funding where you're able to earmark some money from, from your investors to actually get some pay yourself out of this, you're going to be making your own capital contribution. Where are you on that? That's perfectly okay to ask those kind of questions. And I would be uncomfortable if somebody thought that all of a sudden they were going to raise a bunch of money and that money was going to go to their paycheck right off the bat. Listen, I invested in a company years ago where two months after the company got the money from us, we saw these two guys on the cover of the San Jose Business Journal both leaning on their new Beamers. I about threw up on the spot. That money was supposed to go into building the company. These guys took, I mean, talk about getting a lesson. In fact, that was a company, mistake I made, investing in a company where the co-founder of Apple, who I'll think of his name in a second, it wasn't Steve Jobs, it was Steve, yeah, Steve Wozniak, had invested in the company. Well, Steve Wozniak, the money was, it was a throwaway. It may have been whatever. I thought because Steve was involved, that'd be pretty exciting. Well, that was probably my worst investment because these guys had no experience in running a company and had beamers on them, whatever. So you learn as you go. But anyway, you have to be prepared for, for a lot of rainy days. And you have to have a pretty good, you have to be pretty balanced, pretty steady as you go to be able to recognize it's, it's, it's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Are those similar questions that the entrepreneurs would ask their investors? How are you doing? Are, are you okay financially? Absolutely, because that's a whole other story. Because and it's one of the things I do with my own website. I mean, I have a lot of, I'm talking to a bunch of people that are founding companies, and I offer to help them find capital. What do we do? We go in, we use the keyword. Everyone, everybody is looking for somebody with domain expertise. Nobody's going to invest in your company if they don't understand it. I have a friend right now whose company I like, they're in Bitcoin. I just, I don't know enough about Bitcoin. And I just wouldn't, I would never be comfortable enough. And, and here's an analogy. I never want to be the smartest guy on the deal. If I'm the smartest person around that deal. I know I'm in the wrong environment, right? So I get a chance to invest in a lot of small companies. What I'm looking for is a group of advisors that they've attracted who really like this company. It doesn't mean they're investing, but it means the entrepreneur has met them along the way and they're giving some time and energy. They well could invest they well could go on the board. But right now, they may just be on the advisory board. 
So maybe that could be a trap. Maybe he's just collected some people. I probably want to talk to them. I want to see what their commitment is. This gets into a conversation we can have somewhere a little bit later about where I'm involved in this right now with this other company called Circular Systems. But before we go into that, are there any other questions that get brought up during your mentoring time when you're working with startups? I want to know who else they've attracted who want to be co-founders with you. Is it just you working at home with a full-time with two or three of your friends that are working three or four hours and working full-time for other jobs and doing moonlighting at this? Or is somebody else taking the leap of faith with you on this? So I'm a little more attracted when, by the way, there's two or three people who are really committed and they're equally passionate, if that answers your question. I want to know what their role is going to be in the company. Because if everybody thinks they need to go in and become the CEO, that's already a warning sign. Because one of the things that's going to happen in a company if you're successful is you're not going to be the CEO for very long. Because that means with success, we need to bring in somebody who can take this company to the next level. And that's all about leadership. That's when, when John What's-His-Face came into Apple. He had no experience with computers, but he was, came out of Pepsi-Cola and knew, knew a lot about branding. John will come in a second. And you're seeing it more and more in Silicon Valley that the leadership position of being able to attract press, major mark, major customers, major everything, is not something that you have experience for. This is not happening today. This has been happening for years. I see it all day long because I'm looking at resumes and building these files and whatever. The, C, the person who starts the company picks out a role for himself. If he's a technical person, he probably becomes the CTO. Most of these com- By the way, most companies that get started are started, started by a founder who has a good overall general sense and then the technical person who's called the CTO. He, call, he or she becomes the CEO and that person becomes the, the CTO. And as time goes on, the best of, C, of these CEOs bring in a CTO, probably uh, between the B and the C round, when all of a sudden we're attracting customers, greater rounds of capital, and they recognize they, they need to move aside. If they have to be squeezed out without that understanding, that's a mistake. That needs to be a process early on, something to kind of look forward to, and to make, and to, to make a greater contribution. After all, you have a huge amount of st- stock in the company, you're dying to see it be, be successful. So my philosophy would be, how can I help? What role can I have? Okay. And if the person is not, uh, is not fitting in well, then they're probably just eased out. First, they go on the board for a while, they stay on, and then gradually they're, they're eased out. But in a lot of very successful situations, they're there for a long time making, making a contribution. You know. What areas do you find founders or companies having the most problems or the most questions? Well, I think if somebody came in to the company, started a company with a very strong ego and a very strong sense of self, where the I word was used from the very beginning and not enough we and me, not a we and team, that's already probably an indication of a, of a burgeoning problem. And that could happen, by the way, where that person was very, very strong from the very beginning, very, very hard to replace, and was making a very good contribution to the company. But as the company grows and starts to spread their wings, I think maybe that could become a problem over on over, over, over time. Today, being 2020, I've met a lot of very young people, strike the word young, but a lot of people who recognize the importance of team and want to share that. And, and so I think it's become better over time, but ego absolutely gets in the way. That's one very big thing. And, the, and maybe industries, I'm not sure to be, I'm not sure that it's industry specific. 
However, I'm thinking off the top of my head, however, we don't see a lot of semiconductor companies any longer. For example, they're not getting started. It takes a lot of capital to start these companies. I think this formation of companies is much more around the internet and software and because there's so much growth. And by the way, as we've grown all these companies, think of all the alliance, potential alliances that are out there. 20 years ago, as an internet company, maybe all, all you could go to was, was uh, Microsoft and Oracle. But today, there's so many companies out there that are, that are growing, that are, have big-time marketplaces, so many choices, that now, and with the use of search optimization and all the things that are going on, it's just, it's people that understand branding. And, and so now you're, what you're trying to do is to match up your technology with a need. And that kind of gets back again to my buddy who's starting a company uh, where we're matching companies together who has contacts at the highest level. So he taught me something the other day, we, or we talked about it a little more in depth, about where a bigger valuation comes from. A bigger valuation could come from at SAP when all of a sudden they have 250 companies in their portfolio. And if you're building a small little company in, in, in Campbell, California, in the back room of some small little place with a couple of light bulbs there, or three engineers working, and that technology could complement a whole bunch of companies that SAP is doing, believe me, they're willing to pay a big premium for what you're doing. So one of the things that we know is we're looking for the big needs that Microsoft has and SAP has and all these companies have. And we're looking to find companies that are, that are moving into those areas and how we can match up companies. But I mean, to get a premium from a company, you have to, a lot of good things have to happen, but certainly one of them is that what you're building is complementary. As an angel investor, what's some advice you can give entrepreneurs to connect with angels? If you meet potential investors and you start blowing, <laughs> blowing out of steam at them, they're going to sit back and think twice a little bit. You need to be humble. You need to be a good listener. You need to be able to ask good questions. And maybe listen to the answers because maybe the next question should come out of the what you learned and what they talked to you about, as opposed to a script you have with the five questions you want to ask. That would apply to anybody, a service provider, anybody else. Be a good listener. They may be giving you a clue in what they told you as opposed to what you thought you were going to automatically ask them. So that's important. Um, I think you have to be prepared to be able to defend yourself in a conversation about this great market space you've got, because after all, you're talking about a business opportunity and why it's important, why, why you could make great headway there. When I say defend yourself, think about all the other companies that are also going into that space and why they would talk to you when you're small and why would a very large company want to spend the energy to consider you when, when really you don't have enough scalability for them. I mean, you need to have a better understanding of why, not just from your perspective, why would they want to do business with you? And what kind of contacts do you have to get? How are you going to break into those companies? Who's going to help you to get into that thing? Is there a lot of IP involved in what you're doing? Do you need to protect yourself? Just lots of things. And so I think when you're getting started, you're so enamored with, with what you've, where you are now and the opportunity you have, maybe haven't given thought to some of the challenges. Now, the people who are investors have probably been down this road before and they understand the things that are going to sidetrack a company. And if you haven't given some thought to these challenges, then maybe you're a little naive. So you may be giving a good answer to a question, but maybe you haven't thought about something that's beyond the pale that you should be thinking about. So 
because they're and they'll probably be good listeners and show you a lot of respect and interested. But you may walk away happy, but they may feel that you didn't. You were a little naive. But you you just never know. And of course, a lot of these investors today are a lot more sophisticated than they were 20 years ago. After all, I was a co-founder of the Angels Breakfast Club. That group was a group of, uh, I would say, some B minus and C level VCs, small boutique VCs. We had six, seven or eight of them. A bunch of people that were in between jobs that had good positions. They were CEOs and, and C level people who we invited to participate. And a number of higher level service providers that would be could make meaningful contributions. We were acknowledged by Wilson Sonsini, the major law firm, and they gave us free facilities and conference and it was wonderful. We went there, had coffee and bagels and had these great facilities. And we would typically have 40 to 50 people that came to a meeting. And we'd have three companies present at each meeting. And what I remember later on, looking back on that, was these companies made nice presentations. But I, what I realized later was all these companies getting started had not gone to war together. The people they were going to be part of the company were, had great resumes, but they, weren't, they hadn't eaten a lot of cold pizza together at 2 o'clock in the morning. It was we, recruiting people from here and here and here and things we were going to go do. They didn't have the market penetration. So look what happened in the dot-com era. We were talking to companies, were forming companies that bombed out. Because they didn't have real world experience, they had these great ideas, and of course the internet was getting was real exciting, and they were going to go conquer all these worlds. But it wasn't with a lot of seasoning; it was all excitement what what they were going to go do. Cut to twenty years later, a lot of these angels who have invested in these early stage companies got burned, so now they're a lot more cautious about the deals they're doing. They've learned from these experiences; they're looking for a lot more experience, real world experience. They're asking better questions. And of course, today, the internet is much more out there, much more diverse, a lot more opportunities. And so you should be able to have a real story to tell, threaded together how you're going to do it versus what it was then. And so I've learned a lot. And if I've learned a lot, I know everyone else has too. So I think I th- it's the good and the bad. I think the angels, I think there's a lot more angels out there. And that's good because you need to find people with domain expertise who understand what you're doing, because after all, if you're out there pitching to a lot of dentists and doctors and you raise some money, I'm now the smartest guy in the room. That's not good, right? And so you need to have some anchor tenants, some anchor investors who understand this because they're the foremost people who are going to then attract maybe the A-round investors because they want to know who you attracted to your company, who's in, who are the smart investors, and they're going to want to interview them and see what they're, what's going on. Just like right now, I'm being interviewed by some investors in an A-round. So that's important. So, that's the, so the good news is there's a lot more angels and smarter. The bad news is they're a lot smarter. They're going to ask you tougher questions. They're going to be able to see through some things you're doing. So, and it's tough because you are, where are you right now? I'll tell you where you are. You have this idea together. You have about um, three months of cash in the bank, if you're lucky. You need to raise some money by, it's, it's, now, it's now the beginning, middle of February. If you can't raise some money by, by May 1, you'll probably have to close your business down. Your cash is running out. You've made some, com- some commitments to some people who are, you've strung along that you want to pay and get on board. It's dicey out there. So that's kind of the environment. And unfortunately, all these young companies getting started do not pay enough to the concept of what they have to do to raise money. They're all behind, they're all behind the eight ball. They need to recognize the biggest job they have 
along with have this good idea, is to raising capital to be in, in lockstep with the needs you're going to have for capital. And they're invariably behind the eight ball on that. And so who wants to be in a situation where we're going to be up against it in three months from being out of cash? And what does that tell a potential investor who is even interested? Are they in a position to strike a big bargain? Absolutely. If you're sitting there knowing the company only has 60 days of cash, you can drive whatever bargain you want. You ever watch the sharks on TV? The shark tank? What's that all about? These people are begging to give up 40% of their company for $100,000 or whatever. So you can see the challenge out. So believe me, from day one, you need, need to be making a lot of contacts with a lot of people with capital. Wait, tell me more about what the investors are looking at that may have changed over the years, or even yourself as an investor. How about this? Every company is looking for, every company needs to be thinking about an exit strategy. Well, what companies are, are being formed today where the exit strategy is probably within, could be within a year or easily two years? Certainly companies in, in, that are internet-based. If you're building a company for the internet and you can line up potential companies to partner with, that's where the big money is. Now, again, there's a lot of companies in every space. Go look at these spaces. If you're building something for the recruiting industry, I can go into LinkSV and put the, put the keyword recruiting and bring up 75 companies doing something in recruiting. The travel space. Look at all the companies doing something there. You pick the space. The education space. They're very crowded. So you better have something that's really unique. Now, if you build something unique that's really good, that's pretty cool because not only are there a lot of very sophisticated uh, major public companies in education, or in recruiting, but there's a lot of emerging companies with great technology. So again, you're building something that someone else is going to be willing to pay a lot of money for because it's going to make them just that much more valuable. And they're at a point, by the way, they, where they may be a C-round company looking to raise $50 million. And if, you, if they can buy you for $5 bucks, is way more than you ever expected, and fill a very important niche in their company, not only do you have a product, but you have a team on the ground ready to go. They can, they can put you right in and acclimate you very easily. So I'm probably a little bit biased about this because I've watched it go from a different set of companies being semiconductor companies to now the internet. So I'd even say it's a lot of, I'd say the internet is the number one. Now again, I'm just one person, but certainly this is a place to build companies rapidly, deploy them rapidly, get market penetration rapidly, and get acquired rapidly. The second area would be, would be software. I mean, after all, uh, a lot of these companies in the internet are built with a software platform. Look at the whole medical field, the medical software. The whole, you, you used to think of companies as medical companies. Well, now all these medical companies have a software component to it. So I think that um, the software platform, which is much, much ingrained in a lot of these internet companies anyway, and software in general, has a, has a very big play. And beyond that, I'm not sure. <laughs> I think of those two areas as just permeating the internet, permeating communication companies. Those having software internet as your component is to me what this valley is all about now for growing companies rapidly, deploying them rapidly, and getting high valuations and getting exit strategies. Now, the other component of all this is the global aspect of all this. You're not just selling your products today in California, in Silicon Valley, or the United States. You're selling your companies globally. So, being able to execute 
globally. Look at your own experience is really important. So having a global platform, having a global product. So first, you know, you execute, you sell locally, then you sell nationally, then you sell globally. So if I'm talking to a prospective company that has a pathway to success, includes um, a global marketplace, that's pretty exciting too. So you, you begin to ask these kind of quite here, look for all this. And that's what I'm thinking anyway. So you'd mentioned before an angel group that you had formed, about 40 members that would get together, see three companies at a time. They would talk, they would, they would allow three companies to project what they're doing to a group of investors. And then we individually could subscribe. And you asked earlier, or you were going to ask about, you know, types of investing organizations. And so an angel could be a member of um, maybe Sandhill Angels, and maybe Sandhill Angels makes their investments with an investment committee. And so you invest that way into a fund. There are other groups that you write your own checks where they bring people and you make your own decisions. From my own background, and again, everybody looks at it from their own experience. So I never really got involved with groups where where investment committee was making the investment. I would write a, write a check to that investment group. But that's only me. Maybe I would have liked doing it the other way. So from my perspective, I've got a chance to get to know companies really early on, and now particularly through my kids who are really involved. So, and so I'm investing really early on. So at that point in time, I'm not interested in coming in later on with a group of investors who heard about a company. So. What are the advantages or disadvantages of investing in a group or a syndicate, such as you'd mentioned Sandhill Angels or one of these other angel groups here in the Valley versus just writing your own check and doing your own due diligence? If you're involved in Sandhill Angels, which I think does a lot of life, or certainly the Sandhill Life Science Angels, any of these groups, they have a lot, of, a lot of people in those organizations with a lot of expertise. Those members in the life science category, they know a lot. I mean, they can collectively, they know a ton of stuff, way more than I know. When they start interviewing companies to present to them, it's clear that they've already vetted a bunch of companies. They're already excited about them or they think there's great promise. And they can bring to the table a lot of people that with expertise pretty rapidly. So as they get excited about these companies, by the time they go to invest, I'm sure a lot of people with expertise have had a, different roles in talking to different people in those companies, looking at the market space and looking at the eye. Clearly, that's a big deal. And so I'm sure that angels are attracted to that. I mean, there are angels for, I mean, if you look at the makeup of the, of the angel community, for example, let's talk about angels. It started out very early on, of course, with a lot of doctors and dentists and people with personal wealth who wanted to have some excitement in their life. And then as Silicon Valley grew and people in the Silicon Valley companies made money, then we have minted a lot of millionaires and they wanted to invest. And this is a very big group with a very big appetite that's grown rapidly. I mean, Gosh, I couldn't even begin to think, how, fathom how many. Well, I'll tell you what, on our site, we have 8,500 angels, and we don't have them all. There's a lot. So there's probably 25,000 angels in the Silicon Valley who are capable of writing a check for $100,000. The number of doctors and dentists has, has probably hasn't grown a lot, but the number of technology people has grown immensely. Now, who are these people? Certainly, as you've grown a company, you've had a liquidity event in your company. The people who make money in Silicon Valley are very busy starting their next company. But along the way, having some liquidity, they're interested in starting to invest. And there's also, by the way, a whole cadre of people who are not starting companies that are millionaires inside of Google, inside of eBay, 
inside of inside of Cisco and whatever, and they're very high, so highly sought after. Because after all, if you can attract the CTO of you name it company, big company, to be on your board, that's a really big deal. Or to be an investor. These are people I talked about earlier that you want to have as part of your company because if I get a chance to invest in that company and that CTO is on the board, I'm looking right now at a company where the CTO of a very large company in Las Vegas, it happens to be a very large gaming company. And this CTO is completely, he's a full tech geek, knows a million people. Boy, if he invests in this particular little company I'm looking at and wants to be on the board, that he, he said he wants to be on the board and be active, I'm way more interested in this company right now than I was when this young guy asked me to take a look at the company. So all these people in the Valley don't have to be starting companies. Many of them are sitting right now in very strong positions and they get sought out after all the time and they have their, their pick of the litter as to what companies they're going to invest in and what companies that they're going to sit on the board. And when I see John Chambers at a Cisco sitting on the board of some small company with $5 million of valuation and they've raised $10 million, I already know that John Chambers had the pick of the litter. So I'm in a, kind of a catbird seat because I catalog all this stuff. So I'm looking at very emerging little companies. So I'm in a spot to, without even knowing about the company, why are these people showing up in these companies? Why does some worldwide head of, head of uh, sales and marketing from Symantec show up, this, show up at this small company and John Chambers is showing up there? Something's got to give. Something's happening. They're all out there. So these small companies have, they can be distinguished, they can distinguish themselves by attracting these companies. And if they can't, that may be a, a problem. And we're going to end part one of this two-part episode right here. Now stay tuned for next week's episode where we're going to be talking about how can parents encourage their children to become entrepreneurs? What is Link SV? How to create a network that leads to being able to access anyone and what advice does Bob have for people to have fun in life? This and much more on next week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.